Our Father, uh, life is a gift. Breathing is a gift. The fact that our hearts pump is a gift. Everything that we have is a gift. Uh, James said that every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father. How, uh, how grateful we should be, even with the irritations and the distractions and the heavy weights that we carry, those can never be enough to cancel out your goodness to us. You've given us life. You sustain our lives. You have a plan for our lives. You walk through us in every situation of life. You have a purpose. You have a plan. The psalmist said, my times are in your hand. The fact is, Lord, you are there. You are our Father. You have given us physical life. Many in here have heard the gospel. We've heard the truth about Jesus, that he came. Even though he was God, he came and took on human flesh. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He went to the cross. He carried all of our sin upon him. He who was without sin became sin on our behalf. And he died in our place. According to the scriptures, he rose on the third day. Uh, he's now at the right hand of the Father, and one day he's coming back. And he has a plan for the ages. He has a plan for our lives. He has a plan for our time span, and for our children and our grandchildren. It's all under the authority. It's all under the sovereignty. And we're thankful that you are good and that you do good. And that you even bring good out of the worst that happens in our lives. So here we are tonight living in troubled times. Many people are starting to panic. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, in so many situations of life, faith is a refusal to panic. We refuse to panic because you're the living God. And our lives are in your hands. Our future is in your hands. And our eternity is fixed because of the blood of Christ. You will make known to me the path of life. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Encourage us with these words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, we're going to look at a guy that is somewhat obscure in our series called uh, Godly and Gutsy. When we meet the Lord Jesus Christ, just by way of review, well, we all start out ungodly. If you've got a two-year-old, you believe that. Uh, you don't have to teach a two-year-old to be ungodly. They're just a two-year-old just living out their little sin nature that uh, we've all got. But when we meet the Lord Jesus Christ, he transforms us, and uh, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new, and we begin the process of following Christ and being conformed to the image of Christ. We should, uh, there should be growth, and we should be increasing in godliness, which simply means to be like him. 
That's godliness. What's gutsiness? Gutsiness, uh, the dictionary term definition, is, uh, is one who is marked by courage and determination. One who is marked by courage and determination. We have discussed in here uh, quite a while now that it's been easy in America to be a Christian because of... Um, well, because of God's grace, God shed his grace on thee. But um, because of some things that were put in place and some laws and some constitution and some, some freedoms, and this is why people made their way from all over the world to try and get here. Not a perfect place, but a place worth coming to. Um, everything's changed. Everything's been turned upside down. And we are in, we're, we're facing some, uh, we're facing some turbulent times, we're facing some troubled times, we're facing some precarious times. It, it's, it's just the fact. Dr. Al Mohler, who is president of Southern Seminary, has said this, uh, speaking to Christians, he has said that optimism is naive, but pessimism is atheistic. Uh, honestly, I mean, honestly, you look around at what's going on right now, um, if you're optimistic, your head's in the sand. But if you're pessimistic, you're a practical atheist. Because you see, God is at work. And we're going to see this as we turn <clears throat> to 2 Samuel, and we're going to look at uh, a man named Benaiah tonight. But Benaiah was one of the choice men of David. He was one of his mighty men. His uh, story is covered in 2 Samuel 23, which is where we're going tonight. And his story is also covered in 1 Chronicles 11, uh, parallel passages. When you look at Benaiah... Um, there's more to Benaiah than we're going to see tonight. Benaiah was born a priest. He became a soldier. The only guy in Scripture that, that, that can be said of. Uh, he played a key role in David's uh, administration. And then actually when Solomon took over, Solomon made him general of his armies. So he had a long career. He was a, uh, he was a brave man. He was a man of... Uh, faith in the Lord. Uh, his son became one of um, Solomon's key advisors. Uh, he was a godly man, but he was a warrior. And in 2 Samuel 23, you, you get to this section, beginning with, verse, thir beginning with uh, verse 8, where it lists the mighty men of David. And we're not going to go through this list, but they're, they were called the, the mighty men, the 30 mighty men. And in actuality, when you read the list, there's a few more than 30. Well, a couple of them died, da, da, da. I'm not going to get into that, don't have time to get into it. But they were known as the 30. Benaiah was one of the 30. If you look at verse 20, we're going to see this. It says, then Benaiah, the son of Jehoi Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, 
who had done mighty deeds, now watch this, killed the two sons of Ariel of Moab. Um, the first deed he did was that uh, he killed these two warriors, and the idea here, there, there's some discussion when you read commentaries and all this, of what the term Ariel means. It, uh, apparently, these two warriors were lion-like. These guys were off-the-chart warriors, and he took them both on at the same time and killed them. It was an incredible exploit. But it goes on, and it's going to give one or two more. It goes on and says, He also went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. Now, you could fly right by that and never pick up the significance of it. So let's just, we're going to refer to this. In fact, this is going to be the heart of what we teach tonight. And you're saying, what? You're going to teach tonight on this? Yeah. He also went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. And you're thinking, I fought traffic for an hour to get here? <laughs> but I'm going to tell you something. This is significant for those of us who are living in this country in this time. Um, Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. There is nothing in Scripture that's wasted. This was not just thrown in there. Oh, and by the way, the fact that Benaiah went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day, this is not Aesop's fables. This is not Dr. Seuss. This is not the Disney Channel. This really happened. This really occurred to a man just like you and a man like me. And believe me, it is applicable to where we are and to what we're facing. It goes on and says he killed an Egyptian, an impressive man. We won't take the time to turn to the First Chronicles 11 account, but in that account, it gives us the stature of this Egyptian, and he was seven feet tall. He was a giant. So with that in mind, he killed an Egyptian, an impressive man, literally a man of appearance. When you're seven feet tall, you're a man of appearance. You don't go under the radar when you're seven feet tall. Now the Egyptian, now catch this, now the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a club and snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did and had a name as well as the three mighty men. He was honored among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David appointed him over his guard. So Benaiah was a mighty man. Uh, he had a place of honor. He was a man of faith. I want to focus on the event that occurred in the pit, where it simply says he also went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. Um, one of the things that you do in Bible study is observe the text. And uh, 
Some of you guys in here had the opportunity to take Bible study methods from Dr. Howard Hendricks when he taught for over 50 years at Dallas Seminary. And Dr. Hendricks would give you certain basic principles of studying the text. And uh, he had all kinds of methods that just had a way of marking you. But uh, he, he, would, he would give a verse, and then he would, uh, the assignment would be just, just, he'd just give you one verse, just kind of a basic verse. And he was trying to show the importance of observing the text, observing it. Read it, and then read it again, and then read it again, and then read it again, and then read it again. And he'd give you a text, just one verse, and then he would say, uh, so your assignment is, come back next class, I want you to find ten principles in that verse. And you're looking at that verse, and there aren't even ten words in that verse. And, and so you start looking, and you start looking, and, and then you start looking, and man, I got four. There's nothing else in that text. Oh, what's the point? Observe the text. So you go back and you keep looking. Oh, there's one. Oh, gosh, there's one. You know what? You'd come up with ten. But you had to observe it. Someone said, you can see a lot by looking. <laughs> but you got to look at the text. <laughs> and this is legendary. So you'd come in with the ten, uh, you were so proud, you know, you found ten principles in that little verse. And, you know, different guys would give the report, and you go, great job, great job, great job. All right, guys, so here's your assignment for next week. Same verse, come back with ten more. And you'd get them. Why? Because it's God's word. What did Romans 15 say? For whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction. It's not a wasted word. Not a wasted word. The sum, Psalm 119 says, the sum, the totality of thy word is truth. Now, Frank Borham, B-O-R-E-H-A-M, was a pastor in New Zealand. He was educated in England. He was actually, he went to Spurgeon's College, C.H. Spurgeon. They called him the Prince of Preachers. He went to Spurgeon's College. He was actually the last student ever personally interviewed by C.H. Spurgeon, who gained admittance before Spurgeon died. Uh, went to New Zealand, pastored, had an incredible writing ministry, would write short essays uh, and his books have been very hard to find, but now they're available. I ordered six of them this week. His stuff has been very hard to find. The, I found out about him through reading something uh, that Billy and Ruth Graham wrote. They love this guy. And I could never find his stuff. But Frank Bohr, oh, by the way, when Billy Graham went to Australia in 1959 to hold his great crusades, he went out of his way to meet Frank Borham. I kind of think that was interesting that Spurgeon, uh, he met Spurgeon personally, and then as a young man, and then in his 80s, Billy Graham sought him out. He's been obscure for a long time to a lot of Americans, but he's got incredible stuff. Uh, he did a famous sermon on Benaiah 
in 1 Samuel 23, when he went into the middle of a pit and killed a lion on a snowy day. And his outline is priceless. I want to give it to you. I want to give you his outline, and then I want to give you a summary statement. Okay? Point one. A difficult place. A pit. Point two. A difficult time. A snowy day. Point three. A difficult task. To kill a lion. And then a summary statement about Benaiah and this passage that we could so easily just fly right over. Borham wrote this. He met the worst of enemies in the worst of places under the worst of conditions and he won. One more time. He met the worst of enemies in the worst of places under the worst of conditions and he won. <laughs> All of that out of he also went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. Uh, he, he, that was not on his radar. Romans uh, 8.28 is familiar to us. Now I want you to stay with me. Because I'm going to weave a little path here. Okay? If I were going to title this tonight, I would title this, When the Worst Happens. When the Worst Happens. Sometimes the worst happens. Uh, you've had the worst happen in your life. I've had the worst happen in my life. Stop and think for a minute. What is the worst thing that's ever happened in your life? And you've got it on your radar right now. It might have been years ago, but it's fresh. It's there. You still can feel the scars. You can still feel the wounds. Romans 8.28 says this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, that's a verse that's worth observing. And we know that God... Notice it doesn't say he causes most things. It says God causes all things. So the worst thing that's ever happened to you, God was involved in that. To some, in some way, form, or fashion. Now we need to say this. God is never the author of evil because of his character, because of who he is. There are some things God cannot do. God cannot sin. God cannot lie because of his character. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There is absolute moral purity in God. So he cannot lie. It doesn't say he doesn't lie. He can't lie. He can't do it because he's God. Absolute moral purity. God can never be the author of evil. However, he is so big, he is so great, he is so vast that he uses evil. And he uses evil for the good of his people and the glory of his name. If I'm not mistaken, it's Proverbs 16, around verse 3. Uh, 
that says he has created everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Now, don't ask me to explain that, because I don't have the bandwidth to explain it or to understand it, nor do you. But God is sovereign over all things, including evil. Evil is one of those little gadgets on his Swiss Army knife that he will pull out and use from time to time to accomplish his purposes. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Now, things happen to us that are not good. You have Christians being uh, beheaded and being um, um, crucified in the Middle East right now. That's not good. Rape is not good. You have Christian women being raped because of their faith. Um, murder is not good. Rape is not good. Um, we, the list can go on and on. Things happen to us that are not good. Things happen to us that are evil. I always refer to Joseph, the classic case. His brothers who hated him sold him into slavery at the age of 17. Was that evil? Yes. Could God have stopped it? Yes. Did God stop it? No. And see, this is what mystifies us. This is what confuses us. If God has the power to stop evil, why doesn't he, why doesn't he do it? Why does he permit evil to go ahead and happen? Because of Isaiah 55, 8, his ways are not our ways. See, if it were up to me, I mean, if I was running this show, see, he's the God who brings good out of evil. My thought is, why don't you just skip the evil? But you see, evil is here. Sin is here by the will of man. Okay. So what God does is, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. So God takes the worst things. He takes murder. He takes rape. He takes incest. He takes, you know, uh, uh, kidnappings. He takes whatever it is, whatever it is. He is the God who takes the worst, and watch this. He takes the worst, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He is such an amazing God, he has such power, that he, whatever the worst is, watch it, he will bring good out of the worst that's ever happened. He'll bring good. He doesn't tell us when, he doesn't tell us how, but he will bring good out of the worst. That's his promise. It's what he does. It's all through the Bible. We've said before that there are three, way God, three ways that God works in our lives. Number one, he works sovereignly. He works in every detail of our lives. Nothing is out of his control. Uh, the devil is not in the detail. God is in the details. Uh, he is in absolute control. So number one, God works sovereignly. Number two, God works strangely. Does he not? Has God ever mystified you, stumped you, frustrated you, even got you angry? I don't, I, 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 I'm following you, I'm trusting you, I'm trying to follow you. Why has this happened to me? It makes absolutely no sense. It absolutely flummoxes you with frustration. 
you get no explanation. That would be 29.29 of Deuteronomy. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are some things on this earth we will never get an explanation about. And again, go back to this. You don't have the bandwidth, neither do I, to understand the purposes of God. They mystify us. They're secrets. There are some things you have not told your kids. For good reason, perhaps. Now, there are other secrets, perhaps, that are not so good and that at some point need to come into the light. I can't get into that right now. But God has secret things He will not, and it's a good thing, He will not reveal to us. It goes on and says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. So you don't waste your time trying to understand what you can't understand. You just you pay attention to what you can't understand, and there's a whole bunch we can't understand. And the answers will come later when we're with Him. Now we look in a mirror dimly. Can you, what is this about? In heaven, face to face. C.S. Lewis said he believed that when we die and go to heaven, we'll look around and the first words out of our mouth will be, of course. Huh. I could have had a V8. This makes total sense. Gosh, this is unbelievable. Yeah. But not now. So God takes the worst. Uh, is it evil to sell a kid into slavery at 17? Yes. Could God have stopped it? Yes. Did he stop it? No. Years later, and you know the story of Joseph, I mean, he should have been dead by the time he was 25. But he wasn't dead. Uh, the Egyptians weren't real big on worksman comp. If you, they just work you to death, and if you die, they throw you in a ditch and cover you over, and they put another guy in, the lineup. That's how they built those pyramids. He should have been dead at 25, but he wasn't dead. The hand of God is on him, and you know the story. From the very bottom at Potiphar's house, suddenly he's running the whole great estate. He's promoted, and then there's another great disappointment because this woman wants to sleep with him, and he won't uh, compromise his principles. And so she lies. He's thrown in the jail. He did nothing wrong. I've met a lot of guys, Christian guys. I've met at least six Christian men who have gone to jail for things they didn't do. Joseph went to jail for something he didn't do. And see, when that happens to you, you're mystified, and you're stunned, and you're shocked, and you're trying to figure it out. And what? Don't you think Joseph was asking that? And then in God's time and in God's way, God started to bring good. And before you know it, he is called up before Pharaoh. He interprets the dream, and now he is made co-ruler of the whole world with Pharaoh. And the Bible says he became a father to Pharaoh, so actually he was the most influential man in the entire world. There's a famine. His brothers come seeking food. You know the whole story. He finally reveals himself. They go and get his dad. He thought he'd never see him again. They build a gated community called Goshen. It's really cool. They all get together and reunited. Amazing. That's how the Jews got into Egypt, through evil. And then when their dad died in Genesis 50, the brothers freaked out and thought he was going to get retribution and vengeance. And they said, hey, before dad died, he wrote a letter and saying, tell Joseph to be nice to us. And he wept. And he said, you don't need to sweat it, guys. I'll take care of you and your little ones. You intended it for evil. But God intended it for what? Good. Okay. So whatever the worst is that's happened in your life, that applies. That applies. Thomas Rotson, one of the great Puritan pastors, in 1663 wrote a book 
called All Things for Good. Now, he wrote the book to 2,000 pastors who in 1662, because of their refusal to yield to the state church of England and to some regulations that were put in that were non-biblical, their refusal to yield, they were cut off from their churches. They were not permitted to go within five miles of their churches. They could not preach the gospel. They were all cut off from their income. And many of them wound up in debtor's prison, and many of them died in debtor's prison, and their families were destitute. Watson was kicked out of his church. He wrote a booklet, which I've read many, many times, called All Things for Good, obviously based on Romans 8.28. The first chapter, the title is, The Best Things Work for the Godly. The Best Things. Yeah. When you get that job promotion and you get that raise, thank you, Lord. The best things work for the godly. Uh, when you see that girl and you pursue her, and at first she'll have nothing to do with you, and then... You propose, and she says yes, and you marry her. See, the best things happen for the godly. Man, this is, thank you, Lord. This is great. Uh, when, you know, you get it. Any good thing that happens, uh, see, the best things work for the godly. And God gives us many good things and many wonderful things. Incredible things. We're so blessed, it's remarkable. Is it not? Yeah. Chapter 2. The worst things work for the godly. By the way, chapter 2 is twice as long as chapter 1. Because <laughs> it's a little harder to believe. See, no, there's no sweat believing the best things work for the godly. I'm all about the best things. I'll take the best things. Hey, I mean, I'm open to a lot more best things. Just keep sending my way. Showers of blessings. Showers of blessings we need. Uh, that old song just came to my head. The old chorus. Uh, but you're also going to get the worst. You're going to get affliction. So Watson wrote, chapter 1, the best things work for the godly. Secondly, the worst things work for the godly. God uses both. That would be Ecclesiastes 7, consider the work of God who can straighten what he has bent. In the day of prosperity, be glad. In the day of adversity, Consider God has made the one as well as the other. Um, Benaiah is an example of how to respond when the worst happens. Let me say that again. Benaiah is an example of how to respond when the worst happens. And remember, Frank Borham summed him up by saying he met the worst of enemies a lion, you don't want to meet a lion. I remember when we were pastoring in the Bible Belt up in the San Francisco area. Uh, my first church rookie pastor. and uh, I remember Rachel was about a year, year and a half old, and we went up to the, uh, uh, the zoo, San Francisco, Flyshacker Zoo in Golden Gate Park. And we had her in a little stroller, and you know, just been in the afternoon. And she's getting tired. We've been there a few hours, and it's time to leave, so we're heading out. And we passed the lion compound, and really couldn't see him. It was kind of quiet. Uh, 
We're walking for another 100, 100 yards. And then all of a sudden, I heard this sound. And I have never heard anything close to that in my entire life. It, it shook me to the core. It shook every cell of my body. And uh, I think the scriptural term would be that it loosened my loins. Uh, in, in Daniel 5, when Belshazzar was throwing his banquet, and the invisible, and the hand started writing on the banquet wall, it says, some translations, his hips went slack. Uh, it loosened his loins. He, it's a men's Bible study. We can talk about this. I mean, it just, I mean, you just, you, you, I mean, you're just, As we're walking on the way to the car and everything's fine, they suddenly start throwing meat to the lions. And I never in my life have heard anything like that before or since. It was, it was awe-inspiring, but not enough to want to get near them. Not enough to want to go in and open the door of that cage and walk in. He met the worst of enemies a lion. By the way, the strength of lions are legendary. Uh, a lion can take out a tiger with one blow from his paw and crush the tiger's skull, just with one shot. Their strength is unbelievable. He met the worst of enemies in the worst of places, in a pit, in a cistern. Some commentators think that this was a cistern. They gathered uh, rainfall. They would... Uh, channel them into these granite cisterns. You can see one at Armageddon, Armageddon. You can go down the hundreds of stairs where they would gather this rainwater. Uh, perhaps this pit was a cistern. Um, what was this? In the worst of places, you, you don't want to meet a lion in a pit, in a cistern, because there's really no way out. Oh, and he, he, he had this happen under the worst of conditions. It was not August and sunny, it was winter, snowy. And some commentators think that cistern had iced over and somehow that, and not for sure, it's speculation, but for sure he was in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. Perhaps the lion slipped into the cistern where the water, the water was frozen. That lion could not be allowed to stay in that cistern because if that lion which couldn't get out of that cistern, died, and then his foul carcass was in that water. It would foul the drinking water of the, fa of the, of the community, and that could not be allowed to happen. So what did Benaiah do? Oh, he, uh, he went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. The worst enemy in the worst place under the worst of conditions. Sometimes that happens to us. Oh, but we can't forget something. Beniah won. He won. It was the worst. And he actually won. God actually spared him. Uh, in the prayer I quoted Psalm 57 too. Psalm 57 too, David says, I will cry to God most high. To God. Now, now, there you go. We've got to observe. I will cry to God most high. 
Sometimes things happen to us, powerful people. Where, where we are right now in our country, we're, um, there's a lot of grief, there's a lot of worry, there's a lot of anxiety, there's some verging on panic. Because we feel that we have no voice and those that represent us are not speaking and they have, um, with the exceptions of some Daniels here and there, and they're up there. <coughs> They're up there. God always has his men. But for the most part, there's utter rebellion against the living God. Make no mistake, what's happening in this country is anarchy against the living God. Utter rebellion. And so we get this sense that our lives are under the direction and the control of people in high places, and they are determining our destiny. That's what it feels like. In Psalm 57, too, uh, David was on the run. He was hiding, burrowing in a cave from Saul, who was the highest man in Israel, who had all the soldiers, and he's surrounded. It's the worst of circumstances. He says, I will cry to God, most high. They're high, God's most high. Can't ever forget that. They're high, God's most high. They can't breathe without him. They can't breathe. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. Oh, yeah. The good things they do and the bad things they do. He runs them. He owns them. He's got a plan. Um, have you ever looked at the plan God has for the future? There's not one single democracy left. And once again, if you weren't depressed when you walked in here, allow me to help you. <laughs> you say, I'm afraid we're going to lose our democracy. The whole world's going to lose democracy. Wherever there is, it's all going to be extinguished. And it's the plan of God. He ordained it. He planned it. It's in the scriptures. It was revealed to Daniel. It's in the book of Revelation. You love prophecy? Then you know every democracy on the face of the earth will be wiped out. And it's the plan of God. So don't get too worried about the election. Because we're right on schedule. Don't, don't get yourself in a dither over what God's up to. You say, it looks like our nation is dying. It is dying. But the technical term is, we've been given over. Romans 1. Read Romans 1, 18 to the bottom. Read it carefully. When you deny God, when you reject God, when you, when you suppress the truth about God, that he's there, and you know he's there, you observe him in creation, he's written it on your heart, but you suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and you deny that he's there, then if you continue in that, you'll be given over. And then there's some steps. You'll be given over. You'll be given over. And the last phase of giving over is where we are morally, culturally, in this nation. Um, Sexual perversion is approved of and condoned, and if you don't sign on, you're the enemy. That's in Romans 1. So it's right where we are. So here's, here's how I want to apply Benaiah. Sometimes, um, not sometimes, Every guy in this room has a story of the worst thing that's ever happened to you, that's affected you, that is, yeah. 
But see, God has a purpose in it. Uh, you think you'll never recover. We, we could have guys give testimonies in here tonight of the worst things that have happened, and it would take your breath away. And then God intervened. I will cry to God most high, Psalm 57. I will cry to God most high, watch this, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will sin from heaven and save me, even in the worst of circumstances. David was in the worst of circumstances, burrowed in a cave, surrounded by Saul's army. No way out. I will cry to God. He reminds himself, I'll cry to God most high. These men are high. They have authority over me. He's most high. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. One translation is, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. One of the old Puritan pastors said, I will cry to God most high, to God who is the transactor of all my affairs. The best affairs, the worst affairs. He's my God, he's my Savior, he's my Lord, he's in charge of my life. He uses good and he uses evil in my life, and ultimately he will bring good out of this evil. He will put you in the worst situation imaginable, and he will rescue you and bring good. Can't tell you how, can't tell you when. Some of you guys are still waiting to see that. But that's what he does, and that's what he promises, and he's watching over his word to perform it. It will happen. It will happen. Ray Stedman, uh, I, I started going to Peninsula Bible Church when I was a senior in high school, Palo Alto, California. Talked about Ray Stedman in here before. He was a tremendous teacher of the word of God. Ray went home to be with the Lord in the early 90s. Went to Peninsula Bible Church. Uh, he was a Montana cowboy, raised in Montana. Uh, went to Dallas Seminary. Best friends with Howard Hendricks. Uh, some guys were starting a Bible study in Palo Alto. It wasn't even called Peninsula Bible Church. It was called Peninsula Bible Study. And then they called Ray, and three, they asked three different men who they would call, and they all gave him Ray Stebman's name, and he went up there, and they're a bunch of young guys. They don't know what they're doing. Suddenly, they, they, well, let's start a church, and they did. Uh, Ray was a tremendous expositor of Scripture. Chuck Swindoll, when he was at Dallas Seminary, Howard Hendricks said, you ought to go up and spend a summer interning under Ray Stedman. So Chuck did. There was another young intern at Peninsula Bible Church by the name of Luis Palau. And Ray was speaking in... South American Argentina and met this young youth pastor and said, come on up, and he did. So Ray had a way of developing men, great Bible teacher. All of his sermons are online, they're incredible. Uh, I, you could walk into Peninsula Bible Church and in that lobby they had racks of sermons that were uh, mimeographed, you remember, remember that? Mimeograph machines, you young guys can Google this. <laughs> So the sermon from last week, they would edit it, and they would staple it, and they'd put it in a rack, and you could just grab one. You could grab the series on this, and now the whole thing's online. Last night, for some reason, it hit me. I, I wonder if Ray ever preached on this passage. And he did. He preached on it twice. And what was interesting, the copy I had online was from 1973, and Ray got up, and he said... I'm going to do something today that I've only done once or maybe twice in the 23 years that I've been in this church. I'm going to preach a sermon that I preached before. Every week you come up with something new. He said, he said, the reason I'm going to do this 
is I have spent 22 hours this week already teaching and lecturing. That's a lot of time. It was an unusual week. He said, I'm, um, I just could not adequately prepare to do the next message in our series. So I'm going to go back and redo a message. But he said, there's a second reason I want to redo this message. He quoted the passage that Benaiah was, met the worst of enemies in the worst of places and the worst of conditions. And Ray said, that's where I am in my life right now. And that got my attention. He said, the, the worst thing that I can imagine has happened in my life. It's been my greatest fear, and it has occurred. That's the other reason I wanted to go back to Benaiah, because in my life, the worst has happened. And I'm working my way through it. Wow. The worst happens to us personally. Here's why, where I want to apply this tonight. I want to apply it to where we are as Christians in the United States of America facing an election in 2016. Uh, many of us have a sense that the worst could happen. And you're right, it could. We're, we're already seeing the uh, we're already seeing the tidal wave come in and go out, and then it comes back in, and we've talked about this. Um, we're living in times that we have never lived in before. Other Christians have, the majority of Christians have. When I preached for Chuck back in August, um, the first Sunday, I quoted from Os Guinness's book, impossible people. Um, I want to quote from it again. Some of you guys weren't there, and many of you who were there were asleep, I noticed. <laughs> but I want to quote from Oskinis' book. Now, Oskinis is 75 years old. He's a prolific Christian philosopher, apologist, biblical scholar, PhD from uh, Oxford. I, I try to read, it's, uh, th this guy is a giant. I try to read everything he comes out with. It's really hard to keep up with him. His, his output is legendary. One of the things that I discovered this summer is that Os Guinness, I knew he was born in China. The, the, the Guinness family, he's from the brewery family. Uh, by the way, Arthur Guinness, the originator of the Guinness Brewery, was a Christian man, committed evangelical Christian. But the town in which he lived, was it Dublin, Ireland? Yeah. Um, was absolutely, it would be the equivalent of a city being taken over by uh, meth addicts. Only they didn't have meth, they had, um, they had gin parlors. And there was such poverty and there was such despair that the statistics were that every, maybe out of four houses, one of them would be a gin house. And these men would drink this stuff. And it was as addictive as meth is today. And it would absolutely destroy them and turn them into absolute violent barbarians. And families were being destroyed. And, and he got this inheritance and he prayed and asked God, what can I do? 
what can I do to make a difference? And he felt like the Lord told him to start a brewery. Brew beer. And that breaks a lot of categories for evangelical Christians. But Guinness, in fact, the ushers are coming forward with samples right now. Um, you can read his story, it's fascinating. He came up with a concoction, and, and one of the things that made Guinness expand is that it was a healthy drink. It was loaded with B vitamins, folic acid, all kinds of stuff. Uh, brewer's yeast is, is an incredibly, it's an incredible nutrient. Uh, that was all in there. He came up with this, and you know, the motto, he had a motto, you know, one a day is great after work, and did it have alcohol? Sure. But man, you know, hey, they had problems with water back then. You, you get bad water, it can kill you. You need a little alcohol here and there. Even you guys that are against this, sip NyQuil when you can't breathe at night. So don't tell me you're a total, total you know, yeah, you, hey. I've seen you knock out that NyQuil. <laughs> Every now and then, a little alcohol goes a long way. Uh, the Guinness family, there were three lines. You had the breweries, the, the guys who stayed in the business, you had the bankers, and then you had the missionary pastors. So Os Guinness is from the missionary pastor line. He was, he was raised in China. His grandfather and grandmother were medical missionaries who lived under incredible persecution. His parents lived under incredible persecution. He lived under incredible persecution. Incredible persecution. His two brothers died. They, they starved to death. His two brothers. When he finally escaped with his parents, they had to hike over, catch this, the Himalayas. His mother almost died several times. He was close to death several times. One of the things that he is doing Os Guinness, most of us know nothing of persecution. He was raised in persecution. He was steeped in persecution. Um, and see, we're looking at this, and we're saying, depending on what happens and what's coming, this could be the very worst. And he would say, yes. I would recommend this book, Impossible People, to you. Because what it'll do, it'll help you to become uh, gutsy. It will help you to be marked by courage and by determination. I wish tonight I could read the whole book. I can't. So I'm going to read some sections. Um, I think we'll leave here with some hope. Okay? Guinness says, to be sure, Christians in the West are certainly facing powerful opposition created by the convergence of several streams of ideas that have created a raging flood that threatens to overwhelm the Christian faith in its deluge. And see, that's what we're sensing. Because they just don't want power. They want to wipe out any opposition. And this is, this is absolute anarchy and rebellion to God. You can't ever forget that. Read Psalm 2. Okay? He says, the flood is the result of four infamous S, the letter S factors, that have built up over several centuries. And in the book, he traces this. It's a brilliant analysis. The first is secularism, reinforced by secularization, has been empowered by separatism, and the outcome is a new and formidable form of statism. The state's in control. Don't have time to explain all that, except to say that secularism 
teaches, and we're surrounded by secularism, that this is the only world that there is. This is not the only world that there is, Jesus said. Okay. He says the fifth S might be added, the 60s. As there is no question that both in Europe and America, the 1960s had a watershed cultural significance. I remember the free speech movement in Berkeley in 64. By the way, those who were involved in the free speech movement are now intolerant of free speech and trying to absolutely demolish free speech in this nation. You know it's true. Each of these terms and trims are different. We will need to define and distinguish them in the book as we move forward. More importantly, they all need to be resisted with courage and overcome by faith. But if the, faces, if the forces of advanced modernity, modernism, have weakened the church, these now forces, now catch this, are now threatening to complete the overthrow of the Jewish and Christian faith as the working faith of the West, uh, the Western Hemisphere, uh, United States of America, Europe. I mean, you go to Europe, what do you see? You see Reformation statues, you see Martin Luther, you see all the stuff, America. You go, to, uh, you, you go to D.C., you see scripture in the Supreme Court, chisel and marble. Okay, you get this. The challenge described here amounts to a grand showdown for the Western church as a whole. This book is therefore addressed primarily to Christians throughout the Western world, for they are in the thick of the crisis. That's us. He goes on and says, All that said, the main focus of this book will be on the American church for several reasons, principally because the United States still represents the world's lead society and therefore experiences the challenges of the advanced modern world in a clearer and sharper way. Importantly, too, Christians in America are still a substantial majority, so if they were restored to live as they were called to live, they would have the best chance of living and speaking with integrity and even helping to prevent the secularist takeover and pointing the world to a better way. Yet that compliment is no cause for American complacency because there are also reasons why the triumph of progressive secularism could produce more immediate devastation in America than in the rest of the West. And we sense in this. We're sensing this. Needless to say, Christians throughout the West often appear to be on the back foot. They have been told repeatedly that their prospects are hopeless. And that's how many of us feel. In a thousand withering dismissals, we have heard that we are fighting a losing battle and the game is already over. Christians are yesterday's faith, our day is done, our disagreements with others are a matter of bigotry, and we're the bigots, and we are reactionaries and on the wrong side of, the his, and on the wrong side of history. The future is with the faith-free, those who have no faith, we are told, as though there were such people. Everybody has faith in some. He goes on and says, we reject the slur that we who are followers of Jesus are either reactionaries or has-beens. And salt and light in today's extraordinary world, our contribution is indispensable as salt and light. We are, simply, uh, we are not simply guardians of some of the best of the past, but pioneers whose task is to stand against the world for the future of the world and for the very future of humanity. This is why you're thinking about your kids and grandkids. No less than that is the high calling at stake in many of our present challenges. For serious, for serious though our time is, the present challenges are both significant in themselves and harbingers of even weightier ordeals that lie ahead on the horizon. Our responses today are therefore a trial run 
for the even graver tests that lie ahead. And as the Lord admonished the prophet Jeremiah when he was faint-hearted, if you run with footmen and they have tired you out, how can you compete with horses? Jeremiah 12.5. You guys still with me? All right, now he's got a principle. And this is, uh, this is what will give you backbone. It's called the audience of one. O-N-E, okay? As followers of Jesus, we are called to live before one audience, the audience of one. From Abraham on, the life of faith has always been all at the sound of a voice, his voice. There's only one voice that matters for us, the voice of God, and not the voice of the people or the voice of the times, and certainly not the warm embrace of popularity, uh, the soft whisper of our own desires for comfort, the careful eye to our own reputations, uh, the siren lure of being on the right side of history, or the mean faces of the bullying, bullying activist and the social media mob. Equally, there is only one judgment that matters and one word of approval that counts in the end. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. He talks about growing up in China, and at the age of five, because of the persecution, they had to send him off to another school in China, a Christian school in China, where the persecution wasn't, wasn't present. And you don't send a boy off at five, but they had to. His father gave him two flat stones, and he kept one in the pocket of his the left pocket, one in the right pocket of his little flannel shorts that the little English schoolboys wore. And on, and on one stone was his father's personal motto, and on the other stone was written his mother's personal motto. His father's motto was found faithful. His mother's motto was please him. And as a little boy, he always had, whenever he reached in his pocket, he'd be reminded, please him, found faithful. You see. He talks about the persecution in China that was unbelievable. Um, and then what's going on right now in the Middle East. And he says this, and what of us in the West? Are we, too, are we showing that we too are prepared to follow Jesus and his authority at any cost? When an imperceptible bow would have saved Daniel's three friends, they defied King Nebuchadnezzar's idolatry at the threat of being burned alive. When simply closing a window and drawing his curtains could have saved Daniel, Daniel himself, he chose to risk the lions rather than mute his allegiance to God. When a mere whiff of incense would have saved their lives, early Christians refused to acknowledge Caesar is Lord rather than Jesus and were made human torches or the evening meal for wild animals. What then of us? Are we living in light of the great cloud of witnesses and martyrs who have gone before us? Or in the comfortable conditions of the advanced modern world where the seductions of modernity are more of a threat to our faithfulness than persecution? You see, affluence can be a threat. Francis Schaeffer said in, I heard him in Oakland, say, when was that? It was, it was about 79, 80. Someone asked him, asked Francis Schaeffer, and, and James Dobson played two sermons from uh, Schaeffer this week. But someone asked him at that several thousand people, 
where he saw the future of America. And he said, I, I, uh, he said, I see America winding up in a dictatorship. I can't tell you if it'll come from the left or from the right, but it will come. And it'll come for two reasons. Because if people can be guaranteed two things, they will give up their freedoms. Number one, if they can be guaranteed personal peace, and number two, if they can be guaranteed their affluence, they will give away their liberties. I had a chill go down my back. We're close. Um, and I mentioned this in August, I'll mention again. He talks about why he came up with the title Impossible People. He says, why impossible people? The term impossible man was used to describe the 11th century reformer Peter Damien. Um, above all, Damien called for reform against the most prominent evils. In particular, he attacked the widespread practice of simony, the selling of church positions for money, and the equally widespread acceptance of homosexuality, pedophilia, and pederasty, especially among the clergy. His commitment to Jesus alone was so fierce that he won the reputation for being unmanipulable, unbribable, undeterrable, and in George Orwell's later term of approval, unclubbable. Clubbable being the ultimate in coercion through comfortable conformity. You don't make waves. You join the club and you stay in the club. You ever been told you're not a team player? If you're going to follow Jesus, you're not going to be a team player. Not with the world. Unquestionably, the term impossible man was ambiguous. It could be taken either as a compliment or as an insult. Doubtly, many of Peter Damien's generation admired him for his stand, just as many hated him for his fervor. And many were frustrated and made uncomfortable by what they saw by his intransigency. He spoke, wrote, and acted solely with an eye to the audience of one. He could not be deterred by other voices. He was faithful to Jesus alone and above all. He, his faith had a backbone of steel. He was the impossible man. Um, so I'm going to read one more paragraph. The church of Jesus can never be the church without both faith and faithfulness, and both of them in a form that is strong to the point of being stubborn. The supreme challenge for the hour for the church of Jesus is the, in the advanced modern world is to so live and speak as witnesses to our Lord that, as in the model of the U.S. Marines, we are simplify, always found faithful. Now watch this. Rarely in 2,000 years of Christian history has that calling been so tested as it is in our time. Come threats or death, come threats of death or seductive temptations to an easy life, our task is to stand faithful to our Lord in every moment of our lives and faithful to our last breath. <clears throat> the 
this is not pleasant to talk about. But uh, there's a phrase around today in business circles called confront the brutal facts. And you know the brutal facts. This is where we are. Hey, I have a question for you. When the worst happened in your life, how did you get through it? How did you get through the worst that ever happened? How did you ever get through it? There was no way to get through it. But somehow, oh, and here's another one. How did Benaiah, how did Benaiah kill that lion in a pit, in a confined space, in the worst possible circumstances? How did he do it? It doesn't tell us how he did it. But you see, he was faithful to his task. Somebody had to go in there and put their life on the line if indeed that would have polluted that entire water system for that entire community, someone had to stand up and be willing to give their life. Jesus said, there is no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friend. Jesus said, if you're going to seek to, if you're going to, seek to find your life, you're going to lose your life. But if you lose your life for his sake, you'll find it. Uh, what this comes down to, guys, is absolute trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolute trust. <laughs> I will cry to you, O God. I cry to you, O God Most High. To God who accomplishes all things for me. He will sin from heaven and save me. How did Maniah kill that? The, God, the Lord intervened. That's what happened. How did you get through the unthinkable? The Lord intervened. How did Joseph get through what he got through? The Lord intervened. Uh, it, it's, it's just amazing how God works. I, I, some of you guys remember 1968. 68, you can go online and Google 1968, the significance of 1968. You'll see all kinds of articles by historians, liberal ones, conservative ones. They all agree that 68 was one of the most significant years in American history because that's when the back of the America that had been known, not that it was perfect, but it was broken in 68. And things were leading up to it. Like in 64, the free speech movement, you had the seeds. But 68, it was a back-breaking year. With the assassinations, with Vietnam, with all the stuff. And some young guy asked me in the last several months, with, with all of the police shootings and the, and, and the demonstrations and all this, he said, there's never been nothing like this in America. I said, oh, yes, there has. He goes, really? And I go, yeah, the 60s. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you something. They're burning cities down. Burned down Detroit. Burned Watts. It was unbelievable. Cops were called pigs. I remember being a thing at college. I mean, it was, it, there were, and we had a bunch of Black Panthers up front and a bunch of kids, and one policeman walked in, and I'm going to tell you something. That took some courage. I said, hey, let me tell you, this happened in the 60s. And it looked like it was over. It looked like, and I was thinking of this driving over here. I remember one summer day in 1970 driving along Pacific Coast Highway down Newport Beach by Corona Del Mar. I was with a friend of mine from Ohio. We were going somewhere to eat the Cocos to get hamburgers. I don't know what we're doing. 
and we're just driving down Pacific Coast Highway, and all of a sudden I see all this traffic, all these cars parked right down past Fashion Island where, you know, Highway 1 meets, okay. There's a subdivision, and the ocean, you can't see the water, but it's about 400 yards away, and they got all these, you know, houses they built in the 50s. And there's cars parked on the side of the road. And, I said, and Tom was driving, and I said, hey, Tom, Tom, pull over. He goes, why? I said, you see all those cars parked? He goes, yeah, what's going on? I mean, they're everywhere. I said, see if you can find a spot. He said, okay. He goes, what's going on? I said, there's only one reason those cars are parked out there, because the surf is running high. He said, there's surf out there? I said, about 400 yards away. I said, you got to pull over. We got to go see these waves. He said, okay. And he found a spot and kind of, you know, got in somewhere. And, and we start walking. And I mean, cars are parked everywhere, just shoehorned. And I'm telling you, I said, it's wild. When the surf comes up, these guys all show up. And it's wild. I mean, these waves can be 20 feet high. You just don't know. And so we're walking, we're getting over, and we walk right up. To the, 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 we, you have these bluffs at Corona Del Mar, and then it drops down about 20, 25, 30 feet, and there's the beach. And I'm, I'm, as I'm walking, I'm looking for those waves, I'm looking for those waves, and I'm a little disappointed because the waves don't seem that big. And I come to the edge of the bluff, and I look down, and you know what I saw? I saw the pastors from Calvary Chapel in the water, and I saw somewhere between 1,500 to 2,500 kids being baptized in the waves. I'll never forget that as long as I live. And, and a chill went down my back, and it just did again. And I looked at Tom, and he looked at me, and I said, that's the book of Acts. That's the book of Acts. Because the Jesus movement started in the worst of times. In the worst of times. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. There are guys in here that were saved in the Jesus movement. Absolute flat out drug addicts. I mean, your life was boom. Um, I read this the other day and I'm almost done. that in the nation of Iran, more Iranians have come to Christ in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries combined. Let's say that again. More people have come to Christ in Iran in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries combined. That's incredible. Yes, it is. You're saying Iran. Yeah. Aren't they trying to stamp out Christianity in Iran? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it has been said before, when the church is persecuted, the blood of the martyrs is seed. Seed. found an article this past week, Five Ways Persecution in Iran Has Backfired because they're trying to stamp out Christianity. Uh, they banned the Bible. They banned churches. They've killed eight pastors, a couple other things. And it just keeps growing. And it just keeps growing. And people are asking for Bibles. And how is it those men would die for their faith? And, that, that, and yeah, they don't have any churches. They don't have any church buildings, but they've got all these house churches. And they're shutting down the Christian websites. But there's this new technology I can't even remember what it is. And now they're getting around it, and they're getting all this Christian teaching. And now the Gospel Coalition has got all this teaching from 
all these Greek Bible teachers in Farsi, and they can't stop it. And the church is growing, and the church is growing, and the church is growing. How do you fight a lion in a pit on a snowy day and win? By the power of God. God works strangely. He works so strangely. I'll close with this. And it was a story Ray Stedman told in his message on Beniah. A story about Andrew Murray, the great Christian uh, evangelist and author. Um, in 1895, he was holding meetings in a large city. Uh, he was up most of the night due to pain. He had severe back pain. An accident had happened, and for years he had no relief. He lived in chronic pain. But he traveled all over the world. And he was having breakfast in the home of these friends. And uh, a lady knocked at the door, and the gentleman talked to her. And uh, she just said, I know, I don't want to disturb Mr. Murray. I know he's here, but I am in the worst of circumstances in my life. Could he just take my address and maybe send me a word of encouragement? The man handed the contact information, explained it to Mr. Murray, and Murray said, well, I'm going to send a copy of this, and he took from his Bible a page that he had written many years before. He said, I've written this for myself. I'll be glad to send it on to her. And here's what it said. Concerning his circumstances, the worst that he wished, he was in chronic pain. He wished he could be relieved of it. Here's what he said. First, he brought me here. It is by his will that I am in this straight place, and in that I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace in this trial to behave as his child. Then I will say he will make this trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends for me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And last I say that in his good time, he can bring me out again. How and when, only he knows. Therefore I say, I am here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time. And Ray ends with, that is how you kill a lion on a snowy day. And that's how we'll get through whatever the Lord brings our way. He will be victorious. He is at work. And he will take care of his people. He said, I don't know if I can face what's coming. As thy days, so shall thy strength be. Well, I'm not sure what I'm going to say if I give a testimony. It shall be given to you in that hour what you shall speak, Jesus said to his men. He's got us, guys. What was it that, uh, that Moeller said? Optimism is naive, but pessimism is atheistic. Let's not be practical atheists. Let's trust the living God. He's got us. Let's pray, and we'll go eat our cheeseburgers. <laughs> Thank you, Father. These are serious times. 
but we're not alone. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar went ahead and threw those three young men into that fire. And then he said, did we not throw three men into that fire? I see a fourth man who has the appearance of the son of a God. And he was right about that. It was Jesus. The Lord Jesus is always with us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. We believe that. We have found it to be true. How faithful you are. We trust in you for all things. The future of this country, the future of our lives, the future of our children and our grandchildren. You wanted these children to exist. You've got a purpose. You've got a plan. And you will be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.